Today, we are talking to a guardian ad litem. Join us today on Fostering the Future. Welcome to the Fostering the Future podcast, a show about all things child welfare, dependency, adoption, and foster care. Here are your hosts, veterans in the world of child welfare, Jack and Kat. that every human has incredible and equal value regardless of what side of the courtroom we sit on. We hope that everyone feels welcome and accepted here on Fostering the Future. Make sure you follow us on Facebook or Instagram as Fostering the Future Podcast, or check us out on our website at fosteringthefuturepodcast.org. This is Kat, and I'm here with Jack, and today we have a very special guest. This is Trisha with the Guardian Ad Litem Program in Florida. So Trisha, let me ask you a very serious question. What is your favorite drink at Starbucks? I would have to say tea. I'm not a coffee drinker. Oh, really? Well, me too. What kind of tea do you like? Always English breakfast tea with a bit of milk. That sounds really good. I'll have to try that sometime. Trisha, can you tell me what your role of a gal entails? So a gal is a court-appointed volunteer who is to represent the best interests of the children. Okay, and what does that look like on the everyday? Like, what types of things do you do? For I know you do a lot more than you're probably <laughs> responsible for, uh, from my experience with you. But, you know, what, it, what are the main um, functions? So we're very... F- Similar to case management, but obviously, first of all, we're volunteers. We gather paperwork, we um, get school records, medical records, we meet with the parents, the foster parents, the children, and personally, I try and develop a relationship with the children so that I can represent them and understand the place that they're in and what would be best for them, whether that means they need extracurricular activities or tutoring from school regular things that you would do for your own children. Right, and that's, we we had an entire episode really where we talked primarily about the Guardian Ad Litem program. And one of the things that we talked about is, you know, your role in advocating for the child. Um, It's so important to have a relationship with the child. And a lot of um, the times you see Guardian Ad Litems don't really do that. It's like they're checking off boxes instead of creating relationship. And when you have a Guardian Ad Litem like yourself that creates relationships with the kids, like that's when they're going to open up to you and tell you you know, how they really feel about things and what they really need. And you can really make an impact in their life. Yeah, I I feel like the kids that are really getting what they need have really good guardian ad items. So thank you so much for doing what you do. Can I ask you, what was your first experience with foster care? How did you learn about foster care and where the need was? So my children's school always did the um, Christmas drive. Okay. And so we would receive lists from the Guardian Ad Litem program, and it had a child's name or obviously several children's names, and it had their wish list. Okay. Which was always a phenomenal wish list, and you thought, gosh, that's a big list. <laughs> um, and so as a school or classes, we would go out and buy gifts for them, and the entire gymnasium would be filled with gifts that's for so these nice. children. That's so nice. That's just like... It just warms my heart. 
Yeah, that's really sweet. The guardians would come and pick up these massive piles of gifts uh-huh. and deliver them to the children. But we never saw anything after the purchase of the gifts. Uh-huh. And one year they were trying to recruit more guardians. Yeah. Um, and so it really started there. Okay. And that's when you first, and is that when you joined? Yes. Okay. Yes. That was almost eight years ago. Oh my gosh. How many kids do you think you've had total in those eight years? Probably well over 30 by now. Wow. Wow. Oh my goodness. That's a lot. That's also <laughs> knowing how much work you put into your role as a guardian, that is so much more <laughs> than you can possibly imagine. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Some were short term, but yeah. most of them. Like my first case, I still talk to those children. I still have a relationship That's with so them. That's so good. Almost eight years later. That's awesome. That's amazing because kids just, they need people who love them. Yeah. They need long-term relationships. I'm sure they benefit so much from that. Did you know any foster kids growing up? Um, my brother is adopted. And when we were, I guess I must have been in third or fourth grade, my parents fostered. Oh, they um, did. Three children. Wow. So it was a set of twin boys. They must, I can't, I'm trying to remember their ages, elementary school and their sister. I guess that would have been my first experience yeah. with foster program, actually. Oh, my god! So you were a foster sibling. That's yeah. really cool. Do you, do you remember much about it or was it kind of before? I remember. Um, it w- and we only had this one set of children. It was, you know, it was one of those things with the churches seemed to push it occasionally. And obviously my parents' church had said, hey, we're doing this fostering thing and become licensed fosters. So my parents did all that. And we then moved in these um, three children that um, were different than us. The boys had some issues that... Um, food hoarding some of the regular (laughs) yeah um, yeah some exceptional (laughs) behaviors um but no I very clearly remember it I remember at one it was Easter one year and we had a swimming pool out back and there were four of us siblings and then we had brought in these Uh these so you were seven oh like my seven right now and they got new bikes for Easter and we were like so put out yeah and then when you think about it later you're like really you were concerned over a bike (laughs) yeah um but yeah they stayed with us probably nine months oh my goodness so like that's a full you know long-term placement your adopted brother was he one of those kids he was not yeah no it years ago my brother's 50 now it was much easier to adopt children Uh uh-huh um and my parents just basically applied to an agency and they said oh we have this boy he's become available do you want him adoption years ago was so much easier (laughs) yeah how old was he he was was they told us he was um two months old but he was actually only a month oh wow um so if you because he actually found his actual birth certificate later oh wow um and they had his birthday in june when he was actually born in may um can you give me one word that you think people would use to describe a guardian ad litem I would hope that we would be crucial to the children. Yeah. I think that guardian ad litems are crucial to the children. Yeah, absolutely. And it always blows me away when kids don't have guardian ad litems, especially when those oftentimes are the cases where they're really needed. Mm -hmm. How do you see the role of the guardian ad litem in child welfare in the big picture? Unfortunately, in regards to the system and our role, I would say it's almost insignificant. We want to talk about the kids being important and that we represent their best interests. Unfortunately, when you get into the court and you get into the case plans, 
it's never about the children. It's always about the parents. Mm-hmm. Which is very true because, mm-hmm. you know, that that's one of the things I think was so surprising to me when I became a foster parent and started going to court is that sometimes you would have an entire court hearing where not one thing was mentioned about the child and it was just reviewing the parent's case plan. And I think to have such a super focus on the parent and not consider what that child is going through and that child's experience is um, very small picture. Who are the partners that you interact with, like within the system, outside the system, and how does that collaboration work? Um, So everybody from case management on up through that organization, the attorneys at the Guardian Ad Litem program, there's... um, actually paid people like me at the guardian ad litem program and they have lots of you know volunteers under them so we interact with them we're not allowed any direct contact with any attorneys okay so the assistant state's attorney or the parents attorneys it's just that. like a regular legal system so if i wanted to talk to mom's attorney if i had a question or something i'm not allowed to do that oh that's so interesting i did not know that okay yeah um so at the Guardian program, it, it, each case kind of gets assigned a team, right? So there's you, and then who else is on it? So there would be me, and then my supervisor, and an attorney. So your supervisor is the CAM, right? Correct. And that is a paid employee of the Guardian program. Correct. So it's the attorney working for the Guardian program, your supervisor, who is the CAM, and then you, the volunteer guardian ad litem. So those three individuals are assigned to a case. Yes. I've always been like, well, especially in the last, I'd say, year and a half, really in awe of some of the advocacy that guardian ad litems do, especially the really good ones. And I know you are a really good one. I've had a guardian ad litem like to do all the legwork to get a child in VPK. Yeah, I've had that's her. <laughs> yeah, which means like you know, I had you know I had one recently that um, you know scheduled an appointment for me and for her and the foster mom to all meet at the school to make sure that the teacher knew about all the behaviors that the child had, you know, which really required a lot of organizational skills and proactive thinking. I hadn't even thought about doing that, you know, um, getting him a five hundred four. She's the education advocate um anytime as a therapist i mention like what's going on she will order the toys that she feels like would be helpful she's ordered like you know frames photos of the kids parents i am just always in awe of all the things that guardian ad litems will do to advocate for a child what has it been like for you to advocate for a child whether it be like in court or in other ways it is the most rewarding part because we don't always Although we represent their best interests, what we sometimes think are their best interests, it doesn't come to fruition. Uh-huh. Or you're waiting so long. And just the waiting is never in the children's best interest. Never. A case that's opened two years or three years or four <laughs> years. And yeah. It's so when you can advocate for something that they actually need, whether that's completing the social security paperwork, uh-huh. that is a monstrous task because no you knowing that they're getting that social security is beneficial for them mm-hmm. or advocating for an ADOS for mm-hmm. you know, and a test that they need for yeah. a specialized doctor or a behavioral therapist uh-huh. um, or you know a walker for a child that can't uh-huh. walk and whether we get that through funding from the guardian ad litem foundation or from their social security if they happen to have that uh-huh. um you feel that you're improving their life. 
Well, you are. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like the um, stages of development that all the kids go through and we, it's important for us to know them because then we understand what kids are doing. You know, did you guys ever learn about the Erickson stage of development when you took like developmental psychology or child development or anything? I was in school a long time ago, so I, (laughs) well, I always remember, I always remembered this one because um, it stuck with me because for some reason I always thought child development was important, but then I, you know, found it to be irrelevant after they were 18 you know but there's the stage of development when you're like 40 to 65 that's that it's the need to give and the need to contribute and the need to know that you gave to gave back and you know and you get some of that by giving to your kids but you you the need to give to your community and to know that when you leave this world that you made a difference and I definitely think that you have done that Yeah, I know Trisha's not going to brag on herself, but I can brag on her a little bit because I don't think I've ever seen a guardian go to the extents that she has gone to. Um, You know, when she is assigned to a case, those kids are her kids. Forget about having meetings with a teacher. This woman was driving kids to school. Oh, my goodness. Yes, because she wanted to make sure they could continue going to the program that they did when they moved to a different place. It's just being in their life. It's being that constant person that says... I'm not leaving. Yeah. You are stuck with me. And I told this to the yes. little girl on my first case. Like, you're stuck with me until I expect being invited to your graduation, Aww. to your wedding. Um, it, you know, turning up at their soccer games yeah. or their swim meets. Yeah. So they know they have a person. Which is like stability and someone else who loves them. Yeah. You Which can't have too many people that love you. You can't. And these, you know... You really can't have enough stability either. Especially when you've experienced trauma, like that resiliency is rebuilt through relationships. Yeah. And having these like healthy adult relationships in their life is so important. And especially when you have a guardian like Trisha, who like really makes that child feel like they're so loved. And um, that's important because, you know, especially some of these kids, they think the only person that will ever love me is this one person. And that person may have failed me in some way. So how am I ever going to allow anybody else to love me? And the way that this woman loves her kids is like it breaks through that, you know. Mm -hmm. So what do you want foster parents to know about guardian ad litems? I think foster parents, once they get to know their guardian, understand that they can go to them and we are, we can be an aid to them, uh-huh. an aid to their children. Uh-huh. Um, and a lot of foster parents are so new and are just kind of thrown to the wolves. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, we have a wealth of information and we're much easier to get a hold of than your case manager who has, you know, probably 50 kids, uh-huh. maybe 60 kids. Yeah. Most guardian and items have one set of children and they've been with them for a long time and that's actually something that you were speaking to on a previous episode cat is about how a lot of the times when you meet a kid they've had so many case managers but they've always had the same guardian ad litem mm-hmm. so when you need some reliable information that guardian ad litem is the person who's able to provide that yeah that's the case usually what are some basic things that foster parents can do to work better with their guardian Um, Keep in regular contact with us. Let us know that, you know, hey, we're going out of town. Can you make sure that we have a travel order? Jenny has a dentist appointment on this day. Do you have any records from when she went previously? Mm -hmm. We have a wealth of information. They just 
have to ask us for it because sometimes we don't know yeah. that they need it. Um, so when you work with the other partners, like the case managers, also the foster parents, you know, um, the attorneys, obviously it's like third party, but also amongst the team yourself, like what are the biggest communication struggles between the various partners? I think case management is hard because they're always changing. They have a vast turnover. They oh, do. They do. No, they 100% do. of they case do. managers. Um, and they're all, they're overwhelmed. Many of them that come in, this is their first job and yeah. they are given whatever training they're given, say a month's training and then they're handed a caseload of children. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems that there's some tension between the case management and guardian ad litem. Mm-hmm. Um, when in actual fact, we're both really doing the same job. Ours as a guardian ad litem is smaller. We don't have as many children. We're not paid. We have a little bit more free time, most of us that are volunteering. We're not the bad people. We're trying to help you. We can can run around to doctor's offices and get reports. We can go to schools. We can give you an update on the children that we've known for two years and just walked into. We should work more collaboratively. Uh We just don't seem to do that on a regular basis. I feel like sometimes case managers think that a guardian, and and obviously, you know, I don't want to paint a broad brush, but I often, I think I've even actually heard a case manager say one time that, you know, to add a guardian to the program is just creating more work for them and um, making things harder sometimes. If the guardian ad litem doesn't agree with what they want to do, then maybe that's, you know, making their job more difficult and, you know, making it harder for them to accomplish for that kid what they want to accomplish. When in actuality, I feel like a guardian ad litem is often, obviously not always, but often able to make their job. I mean, I when you work with a case manager, they could probably sit back and take a siesta. I mean, really, know? there's some great guardian ad litems up there. However, there are some that are not so good. And that's probably what they're thinking of. I know I have a funny story. I I worked with one once who we did have a good relationship, but in the beginning, it was not so good. And as a therapist, and I've been a therapist off and on for a long time, I took a little break for a couple of years, like maybe two years. And um, one of the first times she called me, she said, you probably didn't know this, but it's your job as the therapist to supervise visits between the parents and the child. <laughs> and <laughs> and that is actually not my job, <laughs> but I was happy to do it. Yeah. It was not a problem. Like it's just one hour out of my entire week. And it was like helpful for me. Like I was able to build rapport with the child. I was able to gain a lot of insights. And I, um, I said, I am happy to do it, you know, on a short-term basis. I'm ha- you know, but I was just laughing because I was like, gosh, you're a very manipulative person, <laughs> you know? And so, um, I said, yeah, I'm happy to do it for a few weeks until you guys find someone else to do it. And so I would imagine those are the kind of things they're thinking of, yeah. but it is a shame that the two parties can't work together better. It, 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 we could be much more productive, I think, and move cases along more quickly, come to a, a conclusion much sooner if we actually work together and yeah. if it was actually about the parents and the children and not yeah. just the parents. And sometimes you are going to have a different opinion. Of course. Because that's your job, right? Yes. Yeah. But maybe it's important for the child for all of those opinions to be heard. It is. Yeah. I, I always find it interesting when I go to court and, you know, I feel like in reality, the the two people usually who know the child best is going to be the caregiver but also if, you know, if you have a gal like Trisha here, it's also going to be the gal. Like the the case that, you know, we shared 
I don't know that anybody knew that child better than you and I, at least for the time she was in my house. Yes. And then you go to court and everybody is heard from. And sometimes her and I are the only ones really not heard from. And, you know, that just speaks to how the focus is not really on the child as much. And every once in a while I'll go to court and the judge will be like, oh, I see the caregivers here. And, you know, how's the kid doing? But, you know, nobody's really paying attention to what you say or taking much stock in that. And, uh, you know, if we're all here for the kids, then maybe that's, and maybe I'm not always right. And maybe I don't always have the full picture of what's going on with the parents. Um, but maybe my input or Trisha's input is a valuable addition to the equation. It is valuable because a caregiver is not a babysitter. And just because a guardian ad litem is not paid does not mean they're uh, insights are not valuable either. So that's a shame. So the partner that you work with the most is probably the case manager. You, you probably don't often work with licensing because that's kind of on the other side of uh, the foster uh, family, etc. And you're not allowed to really interact directly with the attorneys um, or the judge. Are you allowed to interact directly with the judge other than in court? No. Okay. So basically when we're talking about the partners that the guardian ad litem works with, it's the case managers. So what do you want case managers to know about guardian ad litems? We would love to help you. <laughs> we're, we're volunteering. We are almost at your disposal and would be happy to do, I mean, I've dropped off referrals. I've driven parents to uh, appointments. I've dropped them off at PAR. I've done sibling visits. There's a, a lot of things that we will do to assist. You just have to ask us. What do you want the public to know about guardian ad litems? We always need more guardian ad litems that yeah. want to yeah. represent children's best interests. What keeps you from being jaded, burnt out? What keeps you from losing focus on the end goal? Because you've had some cases that have lasted a long time and have been really difficult. I think about once every three or four months, I say, okay, that's it. I'm done. I'm just going to see these children that I have. I'm going to see their case to the end, and then I'm going to retire because clearly I'm not, my mind's not in the right place anymore. And then those children I still have, and there is no way that I could leave my children. Yeah. So as long as I have an open case with open children that need me, I have to stay for them. Yeah. Even if I don't get what I think is in their best interest, they know that I was there till the end. I mean, having you is in their best interest. Absolutely. And that's anytime she's ever said that to me, what I tell her is, you know, the system is not... The system can be a monster. The system can be disheartening. The system can make you lose hope. But when you have people like Trisha mm-hmm. helping in the system, then there is hope for the kids in the yeah. system. So, um, you know, there's kids that need her. <laughs> and trust me, I have had my run, especially lately, with some guardian ad litems that I wouldn't necessarily write a recommendation for. So to, to have amazing, passionate guardian ad litems in the system is is very important. What I wanted to ask you about is something that all of us in child welfare experience, regardless of where we sit 
on that spectrum is we all have uh, secondary trauma from the kids that we work with. And having that secondary trauma often gives us uh, trauma fatigue, which is where you start feeling like depressed and everybody has different symptoms. I, I know that trauma fatigue is sinking in when I am crying <laughs> a lot. <laughs> often, uh, if I'm in court, I'll start crying, um, hearing about other cases and what's going on with these other kids. So when I see that happening, you know, I try and line up some self-care stuff to get me back into mm-hmm. it. What is your experience with having the secondary trauma from your kids and what self-care do you do to put yourself in the right place? I usually end up taking on more children than I think. <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh, they need a guardian. I better volunteer myself there. Um, but <laughs> trying not to do that so much. Um, I work out and I, you know, try and spend a day where not that I don't think about them, but I don't do anything on the case. Yeah, you take a break. You yes. mean you take one day out of like what the whole year? <laughs> one day. You think your phone's always on. People are always texting you. There's yeah. always a parent yeah. or a child or a foster parent or a relative caregiver. I know a foster parent she had that bugged her all the time. It was always asking her questions. <laughs> they don't know that you're a volunteer, and so of course you're not working nine to five. And of course I answer my phone, but when I'm in one of those days, I just don't answer. What are the biggest struggles that you have faced as a guardian ad litem? It's probably a personal struggle, but me thinking I know what's best and Mm -hmm. really trying to fight for that for the children and make the case about the children. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say being railroaded, but just being, you come up to a roadblock and there's nothing you can do because the parents are just given more time, which everybody says is inexplainable or so unusual or, gosh, I never heard that happening before or I don't know why that case is open for four years and just feeling defeated. Yeah. I mean, I would imagine, I think legally in the state of Florida, a case is supposed to be a year. It's federal. It's federal. Federal, okay. So in the entire country... There is a federal law saying a case should take uh, one year to reach permanency. Mm-hmm. And I, I, maybe one case I've seen that short. Um, I know that we've talked about the, the judge up in North Florida who is um, taking some really proactive, creative mm-hmm. strategies in order to accomplish that. But rarely does that happen. And when you have a case that's going on for four years... With no end yeah. in sight. So we think about like the life of a child, like you have 18 years of childhood and you need to take four years of that. It's like almost 25%. Yeah. You know, and you put them in different house after different house, not through any fault of anybody's, but just life circumstances have caused them to move from this foster parent or from that relative caregiver or from this potential mm-hmm. forever home. And... I mean, the trauma, all those times of mm-hmm. being rejected or being removed. And a year in their life, in their mind, is so much longer it's than in so our... Long. I mean, you know, how long did it take to get to your birthday every year? It took forever. Yeah. yeah. And now when you're old in our age, you're like, oh my gosh, I just had a birthday. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Um, what do you think the community can do to prevent more kids coming into care? 
in reality, there's probably kids that should be in care. That aren't. That aren't. Right. Exactly. As a community, I mean, you have to keep an eye on your neighbors. You have to offer community support. You have to have places where people can go for outreach. I think summer camps would be good. You have to help people with their children, not just abandon them. You know, school's over. Now what do I do with my children for 16 weeks. Yeah. <laughs> I've been asking that every morning. <laughs> I called Jack yesterday and said, what are you doing? And my kids come over. I mean, that's real life. It's yeah. real life. Yeah. And if you don't have family support and you don't have community support, I don't know where you turn to. Yeah. Well, and I think that we see um, there are certain cultures um, within our community that have more of a multi-generational living situation. I agree. And I think when you see that family support all in the same home, you don't see kids from those cultures coming into foster care because their family wraps around them. I'm not saying I want my parents or my husband's parents moving in with me. Let me be Definitely clear. Definitely not. I love them, but I love to visit them in their homes. And But I think that there's something to be said for that. And if, if we had more of that in all of our cultures, then I think that that could help kids not need to come into foster care as much. I think so, too. Well, I think we, we might see evidence of that. You know, Miami is like the biggest... Highest population. Highest population, and they are, what, number six in removals? Yeah, we have more kids in foster care than uh, Miami area. And Shocking. Think about how rural we are, even. Mm-hmm. But think about how many people emigrate here. Mm-hmm. You know, not a lot of people were born in Florida. And mm-hmm. so I think lots of people from you you're know, right. other states you're right. kind of come to Florida looking for a new life. Yep. You're and you're right. alone. You don't have family. Yeah, right. And we don't all live right next door to each other. Yeah, that's totally true. I know on the individual level that you're making big changes in our community with each kid that you're advocating for. But I also know that, you know, you are always the first one to volunteer and, you know, you um, heard about an event that uh, an organization I work with was doing last year and was like, how can I help? How can I help? So um, tell me what your goals are. What what do you want to do in your life to make our community better? Obviously, children are a passion that I see is underrepresented. So yes, I volunteered at your event. It was involving children. Of course, it was foster children. The business that we own, we do fundraisers there and they're all children based, whether it's Mm -hmm. books or socks and underwear or clothes drive. It's just trying to do a little bit for one person at a time, really, because and I'm quite happy to do it quietly. But you know that you've made a little difference in that person's life. I think you definitely made a big difference. Yeah. Thanks so much for being with us today. Yeah, I appreciate it. It gives me hope to have all these good people on our show. Thank you so much for joining us today. Make sure you subscribe and follow us on social. We hope that you join us again next time and keep on fostering the future.